Presbyterian church, so I'm not used to hearing that in worship. Um, initially, I, uh, I actually said no, that I didn't want to come down to speak for Justin. But after talking with Chelsea on the phone, and then, and then I verified it because I went back and listened to Justin's um, exposition on Isaiah, he called me a name in one of his illustrations last week. And so after hearing that, I said, you know, I'm feeling very servant-hearted all of a sudden. I would love to come down and fill the pulpit in for you. And so hopefully I can work in an embarrassing story for Justin here today. Um, well, in all seriousness, I will be speaking from Galatians chapter 4 if you wanted to follow from your Bible. Um, I understand that Justin has gone through uh, preaching through Galatians with you guys. And uh, one of the fears that I had, actually, uh, was that it was going to sound like a similar gong for you in the sense that it was just going to be repetitive. But, you know, one of the things that Justin does in his preaching ministry, and I believe this as well, and I think you ought to think every faithful preacher is, there really is one message that you ought to look for in every, go- in every sermon, and that's the gospel. You know, if someone should be able to hear it and be encouraged, they should be able to fall in love with Jesus more. They should be able to see Jesus more. And, what, and that would be for someone that's unsaved or saved, you know, that anybody can come in and do that. And so, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised as I read through a couple of the manuscripts that Justin put up online uh, that even though it's the same passage and the same core theme, you know, it's the same book, that it's going to be different enough. So hopefully I can give you a flavor of that, a taste of that this morning, that this gospel is very multifaceted and you can really approach it in different ways and yet still come to the same Lord, Jesus Christ. And so, uh, if I could, I would love to read this Galatians chapter 4. I'll be reading the first seven verses for you. Uh, The title of the sermon, if you like that sort of thing, is called From Slavery to Sonship. And I have three points this morning. The first point is that before Christ, we were in slavery. The second point is that in Christ, we have been redeemed. And the third point is that, uh, sorry, the second point is through Christ, we have been redeemed. And third point is that in Christ, we have been adopted as sons. So, before Christ, we were in slavery. Through Christ, we've been redeemed. And in Christ, we've been adopted as sons. And so I'll be reading from the uh, book of Galatians, chapter 4, the first seven verses. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. This is God's word. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you from just all kinds of backgrounds. All of us have celebrated Christmas, and we thank you for the season that it was, that it promotes generosity in our hearts, in our family's hearts, in our neighbor's hearts. Yet, Heavenly Father, I know that this season can be a distracting one, and that this season, for as spiritually grounded and as historically grounded in the gospel as it is can be a season where we can often lose track and 
and catch our fancy on the different material possessions that we've gotten or the things uh, that are commercialized, just the hyper um, commercialism that goes on, that it's easy for us to miss the main message. And I confess that I'm even in the throngs of the people that have kind of forgotten about Jesus this past week. But despite that, Lord, you give us grace. And that, as we heard in the Sunday school lesson, that it's the very breath that we have now that we can be assured of your love for us and that you forgive us and that we can come. And so, Lord, some of us are coming, crawling to the throne of grace this morning. Others come running. But I pray for all of us through our imperfect hearing and through our imperfect preaching. I ask, O Lord, that you would show us Jesus, that you would transform us, that you would captivate our hearts and and thrill our souls more so than any time before. And I ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus, for his sake. Amen. So the first point is that through Christ, uh, excuse me, before Christ, uh, we have been rescued from slavery. That, or before Christ, we were in slavery. And by we, I think you'll see by the, well, as you were reading that, by what I explained about the elementary principles, that in Paul's mind, in his scope, he has everybody in mind. It's whether you're a Christian, a Jew, or a non-Christian. And I say Jew because uh, for him, that was a big major crowd for him as he wrote this letter to them. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to try to explain that, but you'll see what I mean whenever I go through it, that he really has all of us in mind. Now, the question then belongs to is that who is a slave or what are we enslaved to? And that's what Paul says in verse Two is that, or verse three, he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, whenever he says when we were children, he doesn't mean a particular physical state. He doesn't mean whenever you were before 12 or before 18 or whatever the age where you become a child to an adult and you cross from irresponsibility and responsibility. Maybe it's when you leave your mom's house. But he rather means uh, that it was a time before you knew Christ. And so uh, he uses this illustration of this children, and he's going to talk about an heir. Now, in my family, I have some relatives still back in, the, in, in South Korea. Uh, we have land. You know, we have land in our family that will eventually come down to me and I'll be an heir an inheritor of that possession. And in South Korea, if you know anything about the country, it's like the size of Rhode Island. It is not a big country. So land is a very expensive commodity. But the other part of that is that because it's been so urbanized, the government has decided that they want some green land. You know, they want some trees in the country and that it's not all a big city. And so they've kind of declared these green zones, and our family is prohibited from selling it, much to our dismay. So we have all this land and all this property tax that we have to sell, and we can't do anything but farm on it, you know. And so that will eventually come down to me. Now, if I was in the Greco-Roman world that Paul was speaking to, what I would need to go through is some sort of a discipline system to prove fit to come into the inheritance, And so what happened was, and that's what he means by the verse 2, is when he talks about guardians and managers. The son, the male heir to the inheritance, would have to go through this discipline system where he was under a lot of tutelage, uh, where he had to go through a lot of discipline where he would be proved fit. So basically, he would have to go through this rigorous uh, boarding school, if you will, 
until a date set by his dad where he says, okay, now my son will go from a child to an adult, and now he will be the heir. He will be the master of the house. And so Paul is saying, uh, we were like him. Now, the other thing that he's saying is that because this child was under the guardians and managers uh, who were slaves in this world, his system and his discipline that he was going through was often a lot like slavery, that it was very regimented, that he had to be obedient in much the same way that slaves were. And what he's trying to do is that you and I are just like slaves. Now, he says that we're enslaved to elementary principles. What does he mean by that? That he can mean several things. One way that you can take that is that he, he means in slavery or slavery to the law. And that's certainly true. He spends Romans chapter 3 speaking much about slavery to the law. He says in verse 23 of chapter 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Paul says that before Christ, we were enslaved to the law. Now what does that mean? It means when anytime you start to find some sort of significance in the way that you can perform or you can obey in the religious circles. You know, and so particularly if you are doing all right in the area of morality, that you're not really struggling with anything and that you've been coming to the Bible studies, you've been going to the Sunday schools and you've been going to worship and maybe you got like a 46-week streak going where you haven't missed anything, then you're all right. Or you find some other form of self-justification, a significance, or maybe the main significance in your religious performance. You know, that you're just being a good person and that's what you get at. However... Uh, this person, whenever the person is caught in a sin, maybe this previous week you got caught in a sin that you just never thought you'd find yourself in. Or it's the zillionth time that you're struggling with that habitual sin. You are in a deplorable state. You're, you're uh, despairing. And why? Because you built your entire system of life based on how you perform on the religious scale. And so this is the term whenever, you know, maybe Justin will drop this, but I call this a religious treadmill. You get on and you set it to 10 or wherever the performance level is. And if you meet it, great, you're in shape. But if you don't, you're not. The problem with this is that what, whenever it comes to relating to others, it's that you, you will swing from the pendulum of uh, self-righteousness and then to self-pity. So whenever you go to the self-righteousness, you're condemning others for not being able to live up to the standard. You know, so you look around, and you, you know the people. You got these people, and I have these people in my life. And they'll say, well, you really ought to, you really ought to do X, Y, and Z uh, in your family. And you ought to parent this way. And you ought to put your schools, you know, you ought to put your kids in this school system or homeschool them or yada, yada. But then it comes down to self-pity. And it's not now condemning other people, but it's condemning oneself. Because now it's, I can't live up to the standards, so how can God love me? In this worldview, in this way of living, there's no state where God's grace can kind of penetrate in. And so you're on this slavery. You're enslaved. That you can't get yourself out of it because you are continually trying to perform to get God's you know, love. One of the best illustrations of this comes from uh, one of my favorite movies and musicals called Les Miserables. I'm sure some of you guys have seen it. There's a character, the, the main antagonist, the villain in the movie is Javert. And Javert is an official, he's a police officer in the French courts. And uh, his entire system 
is built upon upholding and maintaining the law. You know, and so he cannot have any loose ends, but he has one. And that is the main protagonist, Valjean, Jean Valjean. He is an ex-fugitive that escaped parole. And he spends this entire movie. And Valjean is always running away from Javert because Javert is hot on his tail, waiting to enslave him again, bring him back into captivity. And if you look at the movie posters uh, from last year, uh, you see Russell Crowe who plays Javert. And under his picture, it just says, I am the law, you know, that he has to maintain the law. Well, it just so happens towards the climax of the story, Javert gets himself caught. He gets uh, entrapped by the rebels that he was trying to persecute. And the rebels want to just kill him. They want to uh, kill him for being a spy. And, Javert, and, and Valjean is, rescues Javert and lets him go. He shows this great act of mercy. And so towards the end, and it's the final scene with Javert, and he's singing and on the bridge, and he's walking on the ledge. And he's going through, you know, what can he do? Because on the one hand, if he was to live according to the promise of the life that he already built his entire uh, faculty on, then he has to go back and arrest Valjean. But how could he do that? It'd be like spitting the pity that he's shown right back on his face. But to let uh, Valjean go, it means that his entire life has been meaningless. Because it just means now, because of one act of mercy, he can't, he, this whole system is done. It's useless. And that's just the thought that Javert couldn't stand. And at the end of the movie, he commits suicide. He throws him off the bridge. And if you're mad that I spoiled it for you, it's been out for 150 years. So, you know, the book has. Um, so that's your fault. So Javert commits suicide, and in his final song, he sings... There is nothing on earth we share. It's either Valjean or Javert. And so when you think about your life, you know, Justin and myself and Chelsea and you, we're not in this Christianity thing to get our family and friends to get more religious. That's not the message of the Christmas story. We're not trying to get you to come to Bible studies or even worship. We're trying to get you to love Jesus Christ and be faithful. It's, that's it. You know, and so do not hear what I say today or any Christian pastor says, even if he's saying the exact opposite of what I'm saying. That's not what Jesus is about. That's not a message that has room for a baby in a manger. It's either Jean Valjean or Javert. Now, before I move on, I want to say one other thing about this elementary principles. It doesn't necessarily have to be a religious system. Let me say it this way. You don't have to be particularly religious to be self-righteous. What do I mean by that? So elementary principles can also be translated here as elementary spirits. And uh, that's an interesting verbiage that Paul uses. And if you look down to verses 8 and 9, you see a connection that Paul makes between idolatry, the things that are not God's, and this principle, elementary spirits. And so what Paul is trying to draw your attention is you don't have to be a Jew to be enslaved to elementary principles. You can be a Gentile as well. Now, for them, that was idol worship. You know, that was going down to the, uh, the, the, down to the city temple where there was a false god. But for us, it looks a little bit differently. And so say that someone's not particularly religious and they're just irreligious. All of us in life, some of us build our life on a religious system, on a performance level. We got to 
get that done. But if we were to kind of justify our existence or have a sense of meaning, we almost have to give a supernatural, spiritual, some sort of a transcendent, and what I mean, something that goes beyond the realm of material world for something, whether it's a career or whether it's money, whether it's family, whether it's being a good person. We have to build our lives on something that is, uh, we have to deem it more than us. You know, we have to deem it a greater story. And that's what we all do. And whenever you build your life upon anything other than Jesus Christ, then you're getting into the realm of idolatry, which is the same mistake the Gentiles were making by going to worship the statues down at the temple. So let me kind of give you a couple examples. And I'll pick on my generation because it's more fun. Um, Let's take a 20-something girl. She just graduated from college. And her life is built upon adventure and traveling and independence and self-discovery to the extent that she's vacationing in these wonderful places, uh, Italy, France, all that jazz. And she's having new adventures and she's trying out new things. She's fulfilled. She's happy. And she looks down upon her friends that graduated from college, got married early, may even have a kid, and, dare I say, move back home as have selling out. How could you go back to Virginia when there's a whole world in front of you? But when the cruelties of life called responsibility force her to settle down, and it will, she becomes bitter. And she feels disdain for those people who, maybe her husband, maybe her kids, that have made her sell out or, you know, just kind of compromise on the adventures that she could be having out there. On the flip side, let's take a man. Let's take a 20-something man or even an older guy that is on the other side. He builds his life upon responsibility. And he builds his life upon, uh, let's see, just commitment. And so to the extent that he's the main breadwinner, that he can provide for his family and that there's a good shelter, he's got a good job, he's fulfilled. He's doing the thing that he's building his entire life upon. And so he looks at his friends that he graduated college with and they're going out all over the place. And so he feels the temptation to say, oh, they're irresponsible. They can't settle down. You know, the guy that can't seem to hold a steady job, he's just afraid of commitment. You know, and so he's very self-righteous towards the people that cannot build their life upon commitment and responsibility. But when cruelties or the unexpected things in life, such as marriage problems, uh, unexpected medical payments, or even losing a job, and those types of things will happen, then he becomes bitter and he starts cursing God. And he does all these things. So you don't necessarily have to be enslaved to be uh, self-righteous. Slavery to the law neither has to be religious or irreligious. By calling us enslaved to elementary principles, Paul shows us that the divide is not between religion or irreligion, but between trusting in myself and what I can do to obtain the sense of righteousness and between what Christ has done to get that righteousness. So what are you looking for in your life? You know, we're about to set a New Year's resolutions here. 
let me ask you, what are you basing your life upon? You know, what is it if I lose 15 pounds this upcoming year? You know, if I can get through the P90X program by March, that'd be great. Is it if I put away some money away, that's, that's, you know, I'll be just fine. What are you building your life upon that you just think that it'll be better? I'll be just right. I'll be accepted. And, you know, the interesting thing about this, you know, you have all these promises and you might have a coffee mug and they're kind of cheesy promises, but they're reassuring us as Christians. When Jesus Christ says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that I will be, uh, that I will be the one that provides for you, that I'll be your burden, I'll, be, I'll, I'll take away your burden and I'll be your comfort and I'll be your uh, comforter. You know, idols have a way of preaching the same thing to you. You know, that's why advertisement is built upon that. If you have this thing, then your life will be complete, you know. And they promise you. The idols also say, I never leave you nor forsake you. What are those things in your life? To the degree you find it in something else other than Christ, you're enslaved. But to begin trusting in what Jesus Christ did and to believe that because of him, you can be confident in your worth and acceptance, that's the pathway to freedom and true living. Next point is that through Christ, we have been redeemed. And so he touches this in uh, verses 4 and 5. Let me read that for you. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. By sending his son, God freed us from our enslaved state. Christmas, then, is the celebration of the emancipation proclamation of the kingdom of God. That is the time when Abraham Lincoln said there shall be no slavery in the continental United States. Christmas, by God sending his son, means that there will be no more slaves in his kingdom. And this is why Christianity is so radically different than any other religion. Because any religion or any life system worth mentioning here can acknowledge the fact that we're slaves. We're not, they might not use the same wordage or verbiage that I use as we're slave to the things that give us significance and worth and yada yada. But they know that something is wrong with us. That there's something in every human soul to want to find significance in something other than what's here. That's what it promises. And so a new book comes out. Right? And it's seven better steps or seven steps to a better you or, you know, what have you. And it promises that as long as you do these things, then you can be free from your slave state. But what is the thing about slavery? You know, we just sang Amazing Grace and uh, not the song that, not the song we sang. That was written or arranged by Chris Tomlin. But that was originally written by John Newton. And he was a slaver, used to be a slaver. And so he knew very well what slavery was like. And he knew one thing about slaves. And this was this, slaves cannot free themselves. Right? Slaves cannot free themselves. No matter how industrious they are, no matter how, mu- no matter how efficient they are at working, no matter how, uh, how good their work ethic is, no matter how much they contribute to the family prosperity, they were still going to be slaves. Now, you could run away, but legally they were still slaves. Someone had to come and redeem them. Someone had to come and buy them and give them their slavery. And that's the language that Paul is using when he says Christ has redeemed us. It has the sense of a monetary meaning that Christ came and bought us. He redeemed us from our slavers. And so, you know, 
this is why Christianity is so entirely distinct, because it's so different that it's unlike any other religion. Let me put it this way. Every religion says, puts the onus, puts the responsibility of getting out of your slavery on you. You have to do this. You have to follow these commands, and you have to follow this. They, every religion gives you a set of principles. Christianity gives us God's Son. Someone has to set us free. Christianity might not be the only monotheistic religion that says God is one or there is only one God. But it is the only one that is monergistic. That's a big word, I know. But that means it's the only one that's completely one-sided. That God came and redeemed us by sending us his son. And that was not cheap. It cost God greatly. Because he used the word redeem means that there was a price to pay for the slaves. And you know this. This is why Jesus Christ came. That he was born of woman, born under the law, so that he could die for those who were under the law. He did this on on the cross, obviously, by taking the punishment for our sins upon himself. Galatians chapter 3, 13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So because Jesus Christ paid every cent of your slavery, you can be free. Free from what? Free from the fear of condemnation. So the religious person all of a sudden says, oh, wait, I can get off the treadmill now because I can't be condemned. Therefore, in Christ, there shall be no condemnation. There is nothing that God can hold against you because every cent of that, every drop of that was taken upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ drank every drop of God's wrath from that cup. Despite our past sins and current struggles, we are still able to call ourselves forgiven. That's pretty radical. That our future sins, our past sins, and our current sins, no matter where our state is, despite our imperfect hearing, despite our imperfect preaching, that we can call Jesus Christ our God. That's pretty radical. We're also free from the fear of rejection. Oh, I know this is a big one. Because Jesus Christ removed the only thing that God could and would reject us upon, and that is sin. And newsflash, that's really the only thing that someone could reject you on, is sin. Not your insecurities. You know, we were talking about this girl that was a uh, exchange student um, at my girlfriend's house a couple years ago, and she would kind of cover her mouth whenever she'd laugh. And it was not, and they thought maybe it was a cultural thing that it was not polite to show her teeth. And I kind of, no, I said, Korean people smile. <laughs> you know, it's not a cultural thing. But she was so insecure because she didn't like the way that her smile made her face look. You know, and so she kind of covered her face. Jesus Christ, because he has redeemed you, has freed you from the fear of rejection. No insecurity can surmount to that. It's all meaningless. No matter how much we fall short, grace still girds us and protects us. You know, one of the best um, expressions of this freedom that I saw in a person came whenever I was in China on a mission trip, and it was from my friend Caleb, and he was a student over there at one of the universities, and he was Chinese, and we went out to dinner one time, and we got some dumplings, and through our, through our meal, I, I shared the gospel with him, and believe it or not, he wanted to trust Christ at the end. And that was cool, you know, because the first time I've watched this guy pray, he prayed to repent of his sins 
and accept Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you like it to be if your your, your child's first prayer that you know? And so uh, he does that, and we're walking back home, and he uh, I never forget it. He just kind of looked at me, and he said, "You know, now that I have Jesus in my heart, I feel like this great burden has been lifted off of me." And what he was getting at is all this struggle, all his life purpose that he built his entire life on. Because Jesus Christ came, it doesn't matter anymore. That this incredible amount of pressure on his shoulders is just lifted off. And if you knew what these Chinese students go through, you know, being the male heir, the only one child policy, that's an incredible burden. Have you experienced this freedom that God offers in the gospel? You know? And why not make it today if you haven't? What are you running on? What are you trusting on? What, do you, what needs to happen for you in 2014 that would make it better than 2013? Will you repent of it? Will you say, that's not, that's not my God. That's an idol. And trust again that Jesus Christ and what he did was enough? You know? Then you'll really know what it means whenever Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, as wonderful as this news is, it's not the best part of the story. And so Paul continues and says that in Christ, we have been adopted as sons. So read with me here in the latter half of verse 5 and early part of verse 6 when he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus took on earthly parents, Mary and Joseph, so that you and I can have a heavenly father. And sometimes I think in Christian circles, we get so used to praying. Maybe, you know, I pray our father who art in heaven, you know, our heavenly father. That's the way that I love to pray. It's easy to miss what an incredible privilege that is. So it's really worth slowing down and pondering more about our sonship. Being adopted as God's sons means that all that Jesus enjoys and has in his relationship with God the Father is now available for us to enjoy. You know, in our Sunday school class, we read the verse that just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Think about that for a second. You know, you don't have to understand the Trinity, but... Let's just say that, you know, God is three and he is also one. And think about the relationship within that trinity between the father and the son. Think about how perfect it is. You know, there's no suspicion there. There's no fear of ill motive that there's completely self-sacrificing, trustworthy love. And Jesus Christ says, just as the father loved me, so have I loved you. And that's the relationship that he says that you have with God the Father, because Jesus Christ has adopted us, didn't just redeemed us from slavery, but adopted us, that means that relationship between Jesus and God is a relationship you can have with God the Father. Try to find that in the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. You can. It's almost too good to be true. I was looking at different ways uh, before that, actually. Let me, don't let the term sons bother you. And, uh, and the reason that Paul intentionally uses sons is actually very significant because in the Greco-Roman time, only male heirs, only males can inherit the riches of his father. 
you know, that's pretty obvious. So whenever Paul uses the term sons, what he's really doing is he's talking to the females in the congregation and letting you know that you stand in line for the same inheritance as your brothers in Christ. And so he's trying to say that you're not, you're not exempt from this, that it's, this is just as true for you. And so don't let that distract you. And that is why we want to maintain sons, because that's pretty significant as to what Paul is doing here. Uh, but anyways, uh, I got a couple examples, you know, that I can't, maybe this will help. It's not perfect, but say that this afternoon you get done with worship and then eventually I will stop speaking and, uh, you go home and, um, you go into your living room and there's British special forces lining it, you know, all around your living room. And you're like, what's going on? In the middle, there's this frail old lady that's particularly well-dressed with very shiny jewels around her neck. And she's the Queen of England. And she's drinking a cup of tea. And after everything settles down and the dust settles and you're just like, what are these people doing in my house? She tells you this, that there's been a great mistake. You're actually the next in line to be the monarch of the King of England, or to be the United Kingdom. Think about how life-changing that would be. You know, and so they got to rush you to Buckingham Palace so that they can get you to be, uh, get you under the coronation ceremony. That you can go down Westminster Abbey and be crowned as king or a prince or a princess. That'd be pretty significant. That's the type of significance that you have whenever I say in Christ you have been adopted as sons. There are no slaves in the kingdom of God; only princes and princesses. You know. C.S. Lewis says that we are little lordlings just running around until we come into our kingdom. And so that's pretty significant. Now, that's not all. God's so invested in us being his sons, he refuses for us to be left in the dark about it. He doesn't want you to doubt this. And this is a wonderful point. In verse 6, he says, Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart to give you personal, subjective experiences that you are His. By saying that we cry out to God, Paul wants us to get the sense of a child calling out to his daddy. And is there a more innocent or more trusting sort of cry than a toddler whenever he cries out for daddy? That's the type of relationship Paul wants you to know that you have with God. That He's in the room with you. There's nothing that you can get into that He does not know about. We were talking about Justin's wood stove last night about how baby Elliot might have to, you know, run up against it and how to protect it. God knows there's a wood stove in your life, you know, and he's already thinking about how to barricade you so you won't run your head into it. What a reassurance that is. And that's not all. Again, we can learn further about the nature of our sonship with God by studying what we cry out, Abba, Father. Uh, One commentator notes, and this is pretty significant, why does Paul bring the term Abba? Because that's an Aramaic term that was not spoken by the Galatian Christians that Paul was writing to. It was mostly spoken in Palestine, in the realm of Israel at that time. And the commentator points out that this is pretty interesting. He wants to, connect, he tr- wants to draw the connection between our cry to God and that of Jesus in a dark time of his life. In the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can read this in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, he addresses God in his high priestly prayer as Abba, Father. In the last moments of his life, Jesus lost the only comfort, 
the only solace that he could find on the cross. And that was the love and affection of his father so that you and I can have the love and affection of the father. He gave up this very thing so that later God could give us the same. Like Jesus, we ought to call out to God in our times of greatest need. You know, anytime. Don't, I told my girlfriend this the other day. I said, don't ever resist the urge to pray because God always welcomes it. F.F. Bruce describes this as the voice of the spirit of his son on the lips of his people. As Jesus Christ cried out, Abba, Father, so you can too. One evidence that you are a Christian who trusts in the work of Christ more than your own work is that you cry out to your God, your father, not being religious, but just, Daddy, save me. I don't know what to do about this. And think about it. What really demonstrates your faith that God is the all-knowing, all-good God than by saying, Daddy, help me? That's the evidence of faith. Sending Jesus in order to die in our place to redeem us from slavery and to adopt us as his sons is what God the Father did. Sending the Holy Spirit so that we uh, can realize this freedom and, uh, and new identity is what the God the Father is doing. I think any Christian... Uh, any person that would call themselves Christian probably has a subjective experience where they encountered or experienced God. It might be through worship. It might be through the preaching of the word. It might be through uh, just reading your Bible or listening to a good piece of music. But you can say, I've encountered God. I experienced God. And I want you to know today that those are the experiences that God has sent and came near you and said, you are my beloved and you are my child. It's the, uh, the first is the Christmas story. When Jesus Christ came, that's what we celebrate. It's the objective historical truth. The second, that God sending his son is subjective, but it's no less true. That God is in the experience or God is in the business of making sure that you and adopting other people, adopting you, adopting others like you. So in closing, let me share with you a thought that moved me as I was preparing this message. Um, one of the, the campus ministry that I was part of, you know, we, we did a lot of, initial evangelism we called it and we went up to people and started out with the kennedy questions and they were um, not john f kennedy but uh it was just the pastor name with the last name kennedy that came up with this is one of the questions was if you were to die today and go to heaven and god the father asked you why should i let you in what would you say you know and so that you can see how that would respond or create or promote spiritual conversation with somebody but, you know, and a lot of people find comfort at funerals um, of a loved one knowing now that they're with Jesus, they're with God the Father. And even now, whenever you go through trials and burdens and aches and pains of life, you might find comfort in the fact that one day this is going to be over and I'm going to be with Jesus. You know, all free from sin, free from trials, free from condemnation, all that, that you can find all these things. But has it ever struck you that your heavenly father is sitting at the edge of heaven thinking the same thing. That while you're still here, that God waits at the edge of heaven waiting for you to come home. That just as much as you anticipate and eagerly await the day that he calls you home, he's doing the same thing. That he cannot wait to be with you for the rest of eternity. So that's why I kind of find this question, God the father asking me, why should I let you in? A little disturbing. Because in all truth, 
as soon as he sees you breaking the horizon of heaven, he's going to run to you with tears in his eyes and close you with a robe, kiss you and hug you and welcome you into your new home. God wouldn't say, why should I let you in? He'd say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's our confidence. That's our hope. Walk, therefore, in the confidence that this brings until your father calls you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the gospel. Thank you for all the things that you've done. Thank you for rescuing us from our slavery. Thank you for convicting of us of things that we didn't even know we were guilty of, of building our lives on something other than Jesus Christ. And I thank you for freeing us from the things that were enslaving us that we didn't even know of. And that was those things that uh, demand us to perform, demand us to be better, demand us to be more fit, demand us to be uh, a better person. And I thank you, Lord, that above all, that you adopt us as your sons, that you don't just have a bunch of free people running around, but you have your sons and daughters. And we thank you for that glorious promise. And now I'd like to pray for this church. I pray, O Lord, that 2014 would be a year where they see your Holy Spirit moving in so many different ways. And I pray for our um, struggling brothers and sisters in Christ who cannot be with us, our family members who have made decisions or building their lives upon something other than Christ and reaping the disastrous benefits of those decisions. Lord, we pray that you would be with them this morning. We ask that you would hound them in 2014 and bring them back in Christ, that they would not only be able to celebrate with their biological family and worship on Sunday mornings, but they would also be with their spiritual family here at, at Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, that you would increase the fold, not for the sake of having more people in the pews, but for the sake of making your name great here at the valley. Lord, we desire, more, we desire this more so than anything. And I pray, O Lord, that for those of us who have been in church for years, for decades, that we never forget that you're not here to make people more religious or irreligious, that you're here to make us gospel-centered Christians. And so, Lord, I pray that 2014 would be a year where you hound us with the gospel, that you hound us to continually think, God, about all the different ways being a son of God means uh, that we can change our lives to be a better witness for you. And I ask, O Lord, more so than anything else, that at the end of 2014, that we can be in love with Jesus Christ more so than we are now. And I thank you for the confidence of John 15 that we studied in Sunday school and the testimony of your scripture that you will see to do this. And so I pray all these things that you would do it for Jesus' sake. Amen.